This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To find out more, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Thank you very much, Catherine, for that introduction, and I'd like to thank Dr. Chatty and the Refugee Study Centre for inviting me here today. The title of my presentation is Putting the Common European Asylum System to the Test. Um, uh, but I'm not going to talk in detail about the Common European Asylum System, its directives and regulations, and the various instruments that have come in force over recent years, but I will simply highlight that it is something that has been developed over the course of the last 15 years, which aims to bring about more consistent uh, and legally conform approaches to the granting of protection for refugees across the European Union. And my own view from where I sit in UNHCR, based in Brussels, is that the Syria crisis really is testing the commitment and the ability of the legal provisions that have been adopted to deliver practice, in Brighton practice, protection to those who need it most. Before I begin, I want to highlight for you two quotes, which perhaps give you some of the background to some of the issues around this. When there is a fire next to your house, you have to assume it will spread and you have to stop it reaching you. These numbers are more than the capacity of any country to bear. The world should think about how to alleviate this burden. But for humanitarian reasons, we cannot turn back any refugee who is hungry, wounded, frightened or persecuted. Now, this was said earlier this year by Mr. Michel Suleiman, the president of Lebanon, whose country has been affected more, almost more than any other by the crisis and the displacement of Syrian refugees over recent years. Now, I wish to show you another quote, if the system will cooperate. And this is, European countries must not only keep our hearts and wallets open, but also our borders. This was stated earlier this month by the European Commissioner for Humanitarian Affairs, Mrs. Kristalina Gorgieva, at a high-level segment uh, that formed part of the session of UNHCR's Executive Committee this year, a very positive statement that was welcomed by UNHCRs and many, and many other stakeholders who've observed displacement from Syria and Europe's responses in recent weeks. There is, however, one important small fact that's worth bearing in mind when one looks at this, and that is Mrs. Gorgieva, although speaking that day for the European Commission, is responsible for humanitarian matters. She's not the commissioner responsible for home affairs, which determines border management, migration management, uh, and related policies. Nonetheless, we are very glad to see this on behalf of the commission from her part. I want to speak today to uh, a few aspects of this very complex question, and I hope we'll have a chance to have a discussion then thereafter. Broadly speaking, these are the, the areas I hope to cover. I'll talk a bit about the Syria conflict itself and the evolution of the displacement movements that we've seen. I'll talk specifically about UNHCR's perception of protection needs, um, and this in the light of a new document issued yesterday by UNHCR on the protection considerations we believe should be applied to Syrians seeking asylum. I'll talk a bit about what the European Union has done to date, and I'll be focusing not so much on the very important financial contribution it has made to the humanitarian aid effort, but rather to the responses in terms of provision of protection 
to Syrian refugees, both those arriving at European borders and in, their in European states' territories, but also those who are, uh, have been or are proposed to be brought to Europe by way of resettlement and humanitarian admission. And then finally, perhaps we can have a bit of a discussion, and I'd welcome your views on whether or not the EU's common policy on asylum, which has been laid down by the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, has in fact met the challenge and delivered on its protection promise. So just to start, a few timeline uh, elements to bear in mind that it really was in spring 2011 that the conflict began with just protests against the Syrian regime at the time and the beginning of conflicts which saw displacement from at first selected neighbourhoods but then increasingly throughout Syria. By December of the same year, we had the international community launching its diplomatic efforts underway, an Arab League proposal for observers, which tried to provide some kind of independent monitoring for a short while, but then had to be wound up. In 2012, the United Nations Security Council endorsing efforts by the former Secretary General Kofi Annan to put a peace proposal on the table. Um, Mr. Annan, however, unfortunately, resigning a few months later, unable to get support for his peace plan from the elements. We've had, of course, skipping forward then uh, a year, some very serious developments over the last months and years, increasing violence on a, on a terrifying scale and, of course, an escalation in the kind of warfare that we've seen. Chemical weapons, uh, use of chemical weapons against civilians being reported and apparently documented. Disagreement in uh, the UN Security Council and in EU fora on how to respond to this and then at least some kind of uh, proposal on the table for how to deal with the chemical weapons issues. But at the same time, as many observers have noticed, increased unabated use of conventional weapons, some very serious weaponry, meaning that violence against civilians and the population in general has really continued to, uh, to unfold and to force many more people into displacement. Um, just again, to give a bit more of the context, we have, of course, internationally verified uh, evidence of very serious violations of human rights, um, torture, uh, war crimes, documented by the UN uh, General Assembly's uh, mandated Human Rights Council body, the International Independent Commission of Inquiry. There's two reports that have been issued, one in February and one of August of this year, which I recommend to anybody who's interested further in the kinds of evidence that they have found. Clearly a very, uh, very serious situation that is affecting civilians in a very uh, direct way. So while all of this is unfolding, the international community is seeking to respond to help those most directly affected. There have been a rolling series of uh, appeals that have been issued by the UN and other organisations working with them to assist both Syrian internally displaced people within the country as well as Syrian refugees in the neighbouring region. It's a sad indictment on the growth and expanding nature of the conflict if one looks at those figures and how they have, uh, how they have developed in March 2012, just less than 18 months ago. The UN was looking for some $84 million for an estimated 100,000 people that we believed would be refugees uh, within the six months of dating from that issuance of that appeal. But just a few months later, we were asking for more than double that amount in order to deal with a total of some 185,000 refugees that were expected to be displaced. By the end of the year, 
there was a new request on the table for uh, over 1 billion US dollars to deal with the needs of some 1.1 million people. But that total was itself outstripped very, very swiftly there afterwards. And then an appeal halfway through this year for close to 3 billion US dollars to deal with the period until the end of this year. That appeal until now has been funded at less than half of the needs. In fact, that reflects the pattern we've seen until now where each of these appeals have been met with important contributions from donors, including states and in regional organisations, but still with these needs far from being fully met. At this stage, plans are underway to issue a new appeal that will come out at the beginning of December this year, which will project needs for or will project uh, the funding needs for the refugees that we estimate will be in need of assistance throughout 2014. It will be a 12-month plan and it will foresee over 2 million more refugees who are going to need assistance in the region. So clearly the scale of the needs is enormous. I've been talking about the displacement that has been uh, triggered as a result of the violence seen in Syria. So just to give you a few figures in order to put that, the scale of that movement into perspective... As of March 2012, with over 8,000 people estimated to have been killed and many more wounded, we had approximately 40,000 people that had been registered as refugees in the immediate neighbouring countries, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon and Turkey, countries that have continued to be affected most significantly. November 2012, in the same, years, the same year, we had 400,000 displaced in the neighbouring countries and then in March of this year, the 1 million target was reached. Today, we have 2.2 million people displaced. This means, of course, then, that there has been over a doubling of the number of refugees just in the course of this year. And the neighbouring countries, many of whom themselves under extreme pressure because of internal political tensions and uh, differing forces, some unleashed by, some exacerbated by the conflict, under the greatest pressure. We have Lebanon with 775,000 refugees this, of course, is something close to 25% of its population number. It's the equivalent, if one were to have the same number of refugees here in the UK today, of around 12.5 million people, 16 million in Germany. The scale of this, obviously, is, uh, is, is difficult for us to imagine. Similarly, Jordan, another country which uh, suffers from, from increased pressure, economic and otherwise, from the refugee community is hosting with over 500,000, Turkey with 495,000, and Iraq, which itself not so long ago was a source of refugees, is also hosting now an enormous number, close to 194,000. Um, other countries in the region, including in North Africa, again, another region that not so long ago was seeing people flee from uh, conflict in its own, uh, within its own borders, is also seeing people coming to other countries. Uh, from Syria to, to those countries. This just gives a graphical representation of that displacement figure. And here, again, putting that movement into some, some kind of uh, perspective. It's interesting to look at the daily arrival figures as well. In December last year, we had some 3,000 people arriving each day in the four immediately neighbouring countries uh, uh, alone. That number jumped to 5,000 in January and then the next month to 8,000. And then... Just in the last couple of months, in northern Iraq in particular, we saw in August of this year around 3,000 people arriving a day. Um, so a region that itself really has very uh, limited ability to host large numbers of people arriving and seeking protection, shelter, uh, access to, to services and facilities, to, to the means of subsistence, dealing with an enormous load. And so all of this, of course, shows us then that we had 
a few months ago in that region, more people arriving per day in the neighbouring countries than in the entire, uh, than the European Union's two biggest recipient countries um, throughout the whole of last year. So what's the nature of this displacement movement? Well, frankly, it's, it's anyone and everybody from the Syrian population. Clearly, with the movement of that size, it must be a large cross-section of Syrians that are coming into the countries and seeking protection. But what we see as the organisation trying to meet many of the needs there is that there are many people who are extremely vulnerable, a large number of people, uh, of women and children amongst them, including uh, a very significant number of school-aged children, Providing education to them represents one of the greatest challenges we face in the neighbouring countries. And there are many children who, despite best efforts of the host countries and the aid agencies seeking to assist, continue to have difficulty getting access to schooling. Um, there are more school-aged children who are Syrian refugees today in Lebanon than there are Lebanese children in school. So clearly the challenge of providing access to education for those children is, is enormous and, in fact... The need to address the risk of a lost generation is something that's actively being discussed amongst the humanitarian aid community now. We are dealing with some 22,000 pregnant women who obviously have special medical needs in the refugee community. And we have a large number of refugees in all of the countries in the immediate neighbourhood who are living not in camp situations but in urban areas, sometimes in host families who very generously made available uh, part of their homes to refugee communities, some renting on the private market. One of the problems that we face is that rental accommodation is uh, escalating dramatically in price, meaning that refugees who have limited resources are increasingly under pressure to uh, find the means to pay to continue to have shelter. UNHCR seeks to uh, look after some of the people in the countries where we are responsible for the camps. In Jordan, we are running a number of camps there where there are a range of challenges we face, from security concerns to trying to prevent sexual and gender-based violence to ensuring that there is adequate access to health facilities, uh, healthcare facilities and schools, as I've mentioned. But we are seeking to try and also support people who are in the urban environments of some of the host uh, com communities. It's a good thing for refugees to be living in urban settings in many ways. It can be a more normal existence for them. They can get better, easier access to work in many cases and to, uh, to interact with their host communities. But it's an extremely challenging arrange, situation also then for the delivery of assistance. So this is indeed one of the other challenges we're dealing with. So against the background of all of this, what does UNHCR assess as the situation of Syrians who are seeking protection in other countries. First of all, I should say that in all of the neighbouring countries where I have just described the situation and the care that's being provided to them, these are countries that are ready to host these people without an individual assessment of their claims and of their uh, need for protection. These are countries which are admitting these people as refugees, giving them some kind of uh, status which allows them to stay without risk of being expelled in most cases. Um, but they are not conducting a detailed assessment in the same way that European countries do. And this is a very good thing because simply registering those who are arriving f with the view to their identity and to their vulnerabilities is an overwhelming task. We are nonetheless issuing, and we, we have issued three now, and yesterday was the uh, last edition of the protection considerations that UNHCR has produced, in order to guide and advise states particularly that are looking at the individual asylum claims of Syrians in countries abroad. 
And what we've sought to document, in part from our own observations, in part from the research we've conducted of other authoritative sources, and in part from what we gather from the testimony of refugees themselves, is that this is a very serious situation that states should be treating as a refugee situation. We take the view that there is no area of Syria that's unaffected by the expanding violence, that this is a situation where there is no internal flight alternative. We note that the conflict is a complex, multi-layered one, with over 1,200 different armed groups that have been identified by some observers and a very divided opposition. It appears that the dynamics of the conflicts are extremely complex. There is widespread, in addition to the human rights abuses that I cited before that have been documented by the International Independent Commission of Inquiries, there are many other forms of violence being practised. Sexual violence is particularly widespread and we note that particularly children are at risk for, uh, from a whole range of uh, threats to their safety and to their well-being. We see, amongst other things, uh, forced recruitment that's in evidence in Syria, which is one of uh, a form of persecution in its own right uh, that, that affects children in particular. We also see that minority communities throughout Syria are at risk. We note that Palestinians, of whom there were over half a million previously residing in Syria before, are also particularly vulnerable. We note that non-Syrian refugees, of whom there were over 100,000 before, some Iraqis but some also from third countries, sub-Saharan Africa and otherwise, who had previously been living in Syria, are also now particularly vulnerable in the country and increasingly seeking shelter abroad. We have documented that there are, due to the complex dynamics of the conflict that I mentioned before, a range of considerations that may arise for states relating to exclusion. This is something which arises in any... For, for those of you who, are, who, who, who uh, have not been so closely uh, involved in looking at refugee law, there are some groups of people who have committed war crimes or crimes against humanity who are considered not eligible for refugee status. And this may be a factor amongst some people who uh, are fleeing the conflict who have been involved in armed activities. We highlight in particular, however, that this is not something that can be applied to people simply because they participated in an armed conflict without more. It must be shown that they were guilty of the crimes that are covered by the relevant provision in the Geneva Convention or because they're a member of a particular organisation. There's many terrorist groups, so-called terrorist groups, that are involved in the conflict. And this uh, affiliation needs to be looked at carefully before exclusion can be evoked. UNHCR's reached the position, however, that we are now putting to states and uh, ad advising them to consider in assessing individual asylum claims that most Syrians fleeing the conflict today are likely to fulfil the requirements of the refugee definition contained in the 1951 Convention. This means that they have a well-founded fear of persecution that is uh, linked to one of the Convention grounds that is due to their race, religion, nationality, membership of a, political, a particular social group or political opinion. This document underlines also that we think that the nexus or the link to convention grounds in many cases will be in relation to imputed political opinion, people who may be perceived to be associated with one or other party to the conflict. Whether or not they actually are, they may still nonetheless, because of where they live, because of their ethnicity, because of their religion, be considered by one or other parties to the conflict to be uh, hostile and therefore exposed to violence from that group. We've underlined specifically, because this is an important factor we see in the way claims, uh, states are handling claims, that there is no requirement for people to prove that they have individually been targeted or singled out. 
we underline that there are whole groups of people who are at risk of persecution because of their ethnic uh, origin, because of their religion, or because of their actual or imputed political opinion. We see this also uh, uh, emerging in the way in which different groups are ascribing political affiliations to people living in particular regions, to neighbourhoods or villages. This is seen to be uh, denoting some kind of loyalty to one or other side and therefore putting many people at risk. Where people are found not to be refugees in this convention sense, we are pointing out to states that we consider that other grounds for protection need to be considered. Regional refugee instruments, of which there are several, um, subsidiary protection, which is a particular term in the EU qualification directive, or other forms of protection from refoulement, which may apply under national law. We have also identified, and I won't go into this in too much detail because I can distribute the link to Catherine, who I'm sure can make it available to you. We have identified a list of risk profiles, people who are particularly exposed to risk in Syria today. It's an extremely broad list, uh, group, as you can see, people who are affiliated or uh, seen as, sorry, people who are seen as opponents to the government, people who are seen as supporters to the government, because each may be under threat from the other side. We also note that there is perceived risks to those who are seen to be opposing opposition forces where the government is not in control. And there is a whole range of professional people who seem to be particularly targeted by both sides to the conflicts. Health workers, doctors are particular amongst this. And this is one of the uh, more worrying aspects of this conflict that we see very prevalent in the stories and reports we get from many areas particular minority religious and ethnic groups, Palestinians, as I've, I had mentioned, and people at risk of sexual violence, including children in particular, um, lesbians, gay, bisexual, transgender, and intersex people and victims of trafficking. Some will tell us that the risk profiles we've put in this document are so broad that there's virtually nobody coming from Syria who will not be able to make the case that they belong to one of those groups. But we do take the view, and this is based on our assessment of the authoritative sources we read, that the vast majority of the population in Syria are at risk in one way or another because of the situation there today. So who then is coming to Europe from these threatened and risk, uh, these, these, these Syrians at risk. I've given you some enormous figures that are hard to absorb in many ways for those who are displaced in the region and in continuing to be displaced, displaced at an enormous rate. There is a perception, I think, amongst many in European countries that there is also an overwhelming number of Syrians coming today to their shores. In some member states more than others, you have an increasing media focus on the Syrian arrivals with a certain amount of sympathy, but also it would seem in some states with a certain amount of fatigue. Against all of this background, then, it's interesting to look at the actual numbers of people who are coming. It's a total of just under 50,000 people who have registered asylum claims in the European Union 28 member states, plus Liechtenstein, Monaco, Norway, uh, Iceland and Switzerland. 25,000 claims approximately last year and some 20,000 new claims filed until now in 2013 alone. This bearing in mind that every year the European Union receives around about 250 to 300,000 asylum claims overall. So it's a very significant proportion. In fact, the third largest country of origin now. But given the scale of the conflict and the rate of displacement in the region, nonetheless, it would seem a limited number. 
Many of the people claiming are so-called surplus claimants. That is to say they are people who were in the European Union before, many with legal status of some kind, but are now claiming that they are at risk and need to be granted an independent right to stay because they can't return. The vast majority of those who've come to the EU and sought protection are in two states alone, Sweden and Germany, over 60% in those two countries. Apart from those states, we have the UK with a number that's around 3,000, I think it may, or maybe slightly more right now. And then the rest of the European Union member states have less than 2,000 each. So it's very interesting to see the enormous concentration in two states, two states which, as I'll explain, have um, responded very generously until now. So this is the picture represented in graphical form. Um, that's not all of Europe because, of course, we have it is a very, very large number in Turkey. But um, you can see uh, quite small numbers in quite a number of the European Union's member states until now. This is another representation that shows, again, the dramatic contrast and the very small numbers in a few countries. And this is a quote from one EU politician uh, with her perspective on what then we're dealing with here. Less than 4% of Syrian refugees are in EU Europe, primarily Germany and other northern countries. So we are asking Syria's neighbours to open their borders, but we are not doing the same ourselves. This is a member of the European Parliament who uh, is a particular advocate for refugees, but this is a, a view we're hearing expressed in a number of other uh, forums as well. So what's the practice in dealing then with these claims from Syrian asylum seekers? Until now... It's positive to note that most countries are granting protection. We have something close to 91% as the recognition rate, the positive recognition rate overall. But it's a varied picture. We have had variations over the last 12 months where at some points there's been some states who have it as had a zero recognition rate while others are at 99%. We have some states that are giving predominantly refugee status the form of status that's prescribed in the 1951 convention with the highest level of entitlements attached thereto. Um, but a number of other states, and significantly amongst them, Sweden and Germany, are giving subsidiary protection. So Sweden and Germany and a number of others, a couple of other member states, are doing this predominantly on the basis of Article 15b of the EU Qualification Directive. And this is the grounds which say people should receive protection if they are at risk of torture, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. And so Sweden and Germany are granting protection on the grounds that to return Syrians to their country would be to expose them to that level of risk. But many, the majority of other EU member states who are granting subsidiary protection are doing so on the basis of another article in the Qualification Directive, Article 15c, which is to provide protection to people who are at risk from indiscriminate violence in situations of armed conflict. So we have, in what should be a common European asylum system, clearly very divergent approaches to the application of protection criteria. There are also some particularly problematic cases which seem to persist. Cyprus granted subsidiary protection to five Syrian claimants in 2012, and it rejected 30. To date, it hasn't granted a single claim this year in 2013, citing that there are um, challenges in managing its caseload. It has a caseload of approximately 700 claims, as far as we know. Um, and this gives us ground for concern that perhaps Cyprus is seeking not to prioritise the processing of Syrian claims because they wish to not send the signal that uh, they wish or they will be able to receive more. Um, this gives you an indication of the variation then in the recognition rates. Again, a very mixed picture. 
But there are other problems we are seeing. Access to territory and to asylum procedures is an issue that seems to emerge in a number of instances. UNHCR does not comprehensively monitor EU member states' external borders. We don't have scope for that, and there's nobody else that does. But there are persisting reports in a number of cases, and some of them quite credible, of Syrians who are approaching EU borders um, and being denied access. We've heard instances reported of people who had legal permission to enter EU member states and who have been returned to countries in the near neighbouring region. This is not, strictly speaking, reformant. This is not returning Syrians to a situation where they would be directly exposed to human rights violations because, as I've explained, those countries are responding extremely generously to their Syrian refugees. But it is directly contrary to the spirit of solidarity that many European politicians are expressing or citing as something that needs to be shown. Um, moreover, we also uh, are concerned that a number of Syrians who are arriving who may be asking protection are not being identified, either because there is not scope for them to, to have access to interpretation facilities, because border guards are not being trained, or because there are not the right instructions in place. Regardless of the regions, it's a problem and it's a violation of EU law. We also see a number of states that continue to apply penalties to people who are uh, arriving without valid documentation and asking for asylum. There is a provision in the 1951 Geneva Convention that says that refugees who arrive should not be penalised just because they don't have valid documents. Um, but we do find there are some states where people, including Syrians, are being charged for uh, arriving without valid documentation. We also see some Syrians who arrive without documentation, excuse me, um, and who are not actually asking for asylum. Now, based on what I've said before about the sorts of risks that we believe Syrians are facing and the reasons they are fleeing, um, that might seem strange. But if any of you have been following developments in the um, European Union over recent years in regards to the development of the asylum system, you might know that there are some countries that are facing real challenges in fulfilling and respecting their EU obligations. Greece, of course, is one of the major countries along the external borders to which Syrians might be arriving. Last year, there was around 200 people that applied for asylum coming from Syria in Greece. But there was about 8,000 Syrians who arrived and didn't apply for asylum. Our view is that these people probably didn't apply because they did not wish to be caught in Greece, where it has to be said, it's UNHCR's continued view, that there isn't as yet a functioning asylum system, which means that refugees can be properly identified. So Syrians are moving on. Does this represent or highlight a particular gap in the common European asylum system? Arguably, yes. There are very strict nationality tests that some states are carrying out language tests where experts on dialects and accents are being brought in to identify whether people are actually Syrians when they claim to be. Um, some very demanding tests where detailed questions are asked about life in Damascus, for example, which people who have not been to Damascus but nonetheless have been born and raised in other parts of Syria um, seem to be failing. Again, a problem in terms of practice given the needs that we see. A very rigid application of the Dublin Regulation. And many, some of you may know of this instrument, which is designed to uh, apportion responsibility for the determination of an asylum claim amongst EU member states. The Dublin uh, Regulation says that, in general, people uh, should be dealt with by the state in which they have uh, 
they have first entered the European Union. But there are also provisions in Dublin that say that people should be reunited with their family members. There are uh, optional provisions under Dublin which enable states to bring together extended families. But states do not seem to be applying this in ways that are also not acknowledging, in our view, the protection needs of Syrians. And a very serious issue with excessive use of detention. Greece, until recently, was detaining all Syrians upon arrival, but uh, they've moved positively recently to exempt Syrians in particular. But there are many other states where people are continuing to be detained. Um, in one state, Cyprus, which has rejected a number of Syrians over the last year, Syrians are being detained um, on an indefinite basis, even though Syria, uh, Cyprus acknowledges that it is not able to send Syrians back. So a very serious problem there in terms of um, unlimited and arguably arbitrary detention. Some other issues and concerns around processing. Um, we do see some states who have had very significant backlogs. Backlogs and claims are something that one could expect with increased numbers, but uh, we have also argued that given the EU has available support mechanisms through the European Asylum Support Office, financial resources specifically earmarked for emergency purposes, there should be means to overcome all of this. There shouldn't be reasons why Syrian claims should be left pending for months and months. In fact, we've argued they could be subject to accelerated procedures as manifestly well-founded claims and subject to expedited processing, but this has been a difficult issue. Varying differences, uh, varying uh, approaches to the forms of status granted. I'd mentioned before refugee and subsidiary protection. Some states have also been granting a kind of temporary national protection with very limited rights attached to it. Extremely short-term visas, no family reunification rights, and other things that tend to make the life of people who have no other uh, shelter very difficult. Um, we're also concerned at what seems to be the lack of contingency planning in EU member states. The High Commissioner attended a meeting of interior ministers not long ago and called on them to make plans for the possibility that very significant numbers could arise. In fact, significantly increased numbers if the situation in some of the neighbouring countries became untenable. But until now, very little done. And a great deal of attention focused on perceived risks amongst Syrian refugees, but also on the fact that European Union nationals are going to fight in Syria and what this means for national security. Um, underestimating perhaps the things that Europeans need to do for the Syrians who themselves are fleeing extremism and terrorism here in Europe. Okay, I just want to illustrate some of these challenges with a particular difficult situation we're seeing now. Just in recent weeks, it's unfolded and it's something that um, the EU is, is seeking to address but until now hasn't managed. Um, Bulgaria is a country that traditionally has less than 1,000 asylum claims a year. This year it's received close to 4,000, a very significant increase, about half of which has been Syrians. There are two reception centres, uh, sorry, there are, there are four reception centres and some other accommodation, but that's um, been significantly overcrowded and exceeded by these arrivals. There is no food available in those reception centres. There are no facilities for people to, to cook. Um, some of the media reports that have highlighted the situation have pointed to people who are unable to find a place to sleep, that there are people who have been sent to detention because there is no space for them in open reception centres, and that those who have been waiting to, to have their claims dealt with can't even get registered in less than six months. Um, this is a very serious test in practice, and one that perhaps could have been averted had there been some contingency planning put in place, or were there flexible mechanisms available which would enable other member states to perhaps step in and help, whether that would be with seconded 
personnel or with resources or with the possibility of perhaps assuming responsibility for some of these claims themselves. The EU is discussing it intensively now. The European Asylum Support Office has been dispatched to look at what it could provide by way of support. But in the meantime, these people who are refugees, squarely in UNHCR's assessment, are unable to get access to the rights they need in the European Union. We've also got, I think, in the last few weeks, another very clearly highlighted example of what a crisis of this kind can pose by way of challenge to the European Union. Um, Sea arrivals, uh, especially in the wake of the tragedies off the coast of Italy and Malta in the last few weeks, have been a focus of particular discussion. This is not a new phenomenon, but it's been particularly highlighted by these disasters. We are seeing increasing numbers of Syrians coming via the European Union's sea borders. Um, A significant number of those who died in the second tragic incident on the 11th of October were Syrians and Palestinians. But the discussion that's going on now about how to reinforce the situation at the sea borders and to provide increased capacity for patrolling is not taking into account, at least until now, the particular change in this, the profile of this movement and the need to ensure there are increased reception and protection mechanisms available for these people. So a clear gap from our point of view. Okay, there is something very important that the EU is doing that must be highlighted and acknowledged. Um, UNHCR has been encouraging states to look at resettlement of Syrians. Resettlement, for those of you who haven't dealt with it, is the offering by a a country of asylum of a place to a refugee who is, for the time being, in another country, but where their situation may not be uh, uh, secure there, where they may not be able to have their needs met. It's a voluntary offer to take on responsibility for a refugee in another state that perhaps is unable to to provide a solution on a long-term basis. Humanitarian admission has also come into the discussion this year after Germany in March of 2013 offered 5,000 places for Syrians to come on a temporary basis to Germany. UNHCR has particularly emphasised that we would like to facilitate resettlement and humanitarian admission for two categories, particularly vulnerable people, a broadly defined category, but nonetheless one that could help us to identify a number of people in Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, Iraq, Egypt and North Africa who can't get their needs met in the place where they are now, as well as others who are continuing to face serious threats to their physical security where they are. We set a target of 30,000 places by the end of 2014. By contrast with the numbers I'd mentioned before of the refugees in the neighbouring countries, it's a modest number. But um, we do think it's something that could make at least some important impact for those people who would be affected and would send a message of solidarity beyond what we've seen until now. We have 16 states who've indicated their readiness to take part until now, so around about 10,000 offers thus far. It will be interesting to see if we're going to get that 30,000 places before the end of next year because we are being asked by states also about whether or not that 30,000 target, ambitious though it did seem to some, is enough. Um, Some of the states in the neighbouring region are ambivalent about the issue. They have asked whether or not this, there is a risk that by, uh, that, that offers of resettlement from donor countries might mean a corresponding drop in the level of assistance and support they get. Could this mean that through trying to identify these particularly vulnerable people, UNHCR and other helping refugees in the, in the countries of asylum, or in the countries of first asylum, might not be able to deal with the immediate needs of the refugees they're caring for. And the real big question of principle, is this really such a small number that in the longer run it doesn't make a difference and it's not going to have a significant impact? 
UNHCR takes the view that, sorry, that uh, we should nonetheless be doing this because we think that, that it could be something that could be the basis at least for some individuals who have the need uh, to get the protection and to have their specific needs addressed in countries that would offer resettlement places. But we're also trying to encourage states to think more flexibly about other ways they could help Syrians who are at risk in the refugee hosting countries in the neighbouring region. Family reunification, which is something that all states can do, and given that there are significant Syrian diasporas in European countries, something that would make a big difference to a lot of people's lives. Flexible approaches to Dublin. Refraining from imposing visa requirements. There's a number of EU states this year who have added Syrians to the list of people required to hold transit visas in order to access their airports. Other gestures which could include extension of study and work visas for those who are still here. We've been making these calls for some 18 months now and the response to date has been limited, but it's something that we hope that the European Union, although not strictly bound to do, will see as an important step forward. And then the other question we're putting on the table as to whether or not one particular EU instrument should be used, which has not been used until now. In 2001, the European Union adopted the Temporary Protection Directive, mindful of the experience of the wars in the former Yugoslavia and of the humanitarian evacuation from Kosovo in particular, um, an instrument which was adopted which provided for protection of people who would come in a so-called mass influx. Mass influx was defined as the arrival in the EU of a large number of displaced persons from a specific country or geographical area, spontaneously or aided through an evacuation program. Until now... Nobody except the High Commissioner for Refugees in EU circles has been ready to discuss application of the Temporary Protection Directive. There is no definition of what a mass influx uh, amounts to in numerical terms. But given the situation I just described to you then in Bulgaria at the moment, we think a strong case that can be made that the arrival of 2,000 Syrians in Bulgaria is placing a, a strain which is equivalent to that of a mass influx in Bulgaria. The numbers arriving in Germany and Sweden, although they are very well-resourced countries with sophisticated asylum uh, institutions, that's a very significant jump. If these numbers continue to grow and arrive in particular states that perhaps may not be able to cope with these, then this may be a situation for application of the Temporary Protection Directive. Its advantages would be we would have then a clear legal basis for actions based on solidarity amongst the member states of the European Union to ensure the particular states under pressure could seek to get help from others. It could, in principle, ensure that every Syrian arriving at EU borders or within the country and asking for protection could be granted a permit immediately without the need to go through the process, which, as we see in some countries, is becoming extremely protected. It would provide a means for them to stay, to work, to continue their lives with a view to returning if the conflict resolves itself within the immediate future or in the medium to longer term. The difficulties with this instrument is indeed there is clearly a very uh, a great deal of hesitancy about uh, concluding that the threshold for its invocation, the mass influx situation has arrived. It does not actually provide a specific obligation for states to take refugees or asylum seekers from each other. It requires all states to notify what their capacity would be, but there would still be a negotiation which would then have to take place to determine who would take how many. And the big element, which really 
is probably behind the reluctance of European states to even consider it, is that it is seen as a pull factor. The argument runs that if the EU were to apply this tomorrow, then even more of the Syrians who are in the neighbouring countries now or within Syria itself would be tempted to come to the European Union to stay and work immediately for a temporary period. Is this a reason not to apply it? That's an interesting discussion on one one probably needs to have a political level quite soon. So I'm interested to hear from you. I'd like to invite questions, comments, um, arguments with what I've said until now. I've got a few questions of my own that I'm struggling with as uh, we look at this situation today. And the main one really is focusing on this issue of solidarity. Is the EU's response until now one that's characterised by solidarity? Within the European Union, we have a provision that was adopted in the Lisbon Treaty in 2009 requiring that states implement asylum policies in ways that are governed by the principle of solidarity and fair sharing of responsibility. But that's not evident, we would say, right now. Solidarity beyond the European Union for the states in the neighbouring region of Syria? Again, we have a specific provision in the Lisbon Treaty that talks about partnership and cooperation with third countries on refugee protection, amongst other things. But is that what we've seen with what the EU has been ready to do so far? What else could be done beyond the range of things that I've talked about today? That's something that UNHCR and asylum advocates are struggling with in this discussion as the conflict escalates and shows no sign of abating. We need to be creative because what we've argued for until now clearly hasn't worked. How can the range of different policy agendas that are involved in the EU's response to this conflict be brought into coherence? We see one message at the foreign affairs level, one of strong solidarity and a wish to help and support the countries in the region. We see generosity in the humanitarian aid side. We see less readiness to respond until now on the development side, although some have been saying in recent time that this will require very serious long-term development policies in the neighbouring countries to help shore up their capacity, not just in Syria after it um, can finally find an end to the conflict, although that would be the case. And then finally, the home affairs agenda. With the way borders are being managed and asylum claims responded to, this seems to be at odds with some of the other messages coming from other parts of government. Security is clearly a huge issue dominating member states thinking this right now. Is this justified by the evidence? Observers have differing views. If it is, and it may be, then there must be ways to deal with this in refugee processing arrangements, in border policies, in responses that are needed to assist the surrounding countries in Syria's neighbourhood to deal with this as well, because they, above all, are affected by these kinds of concerns. So there's many questions that I can think of, but um, I'd like to thank you for listening and um, open the floor for comments from any of you. Thank you very much. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk slash resources slash connect.